Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to go deeper into some of the stories shaping the world's most dynamic region. I'm Andrew People. We've talked many times on this podcast about the Indo-Pacific and China and how countries in the West can best manage relations with players in that all-important region. Increasingly, the area is becoming the centre of the geopolitical conversation being had all around the world. We're going to talk about it again today, but this week's podcast is slightly different. It's a recording of a webinar held in collaboration with the Royal United Services Institute, or RUSI, in London. And we have three fantastic speakers for you. Raffaello Pantucci, Senior Associate Fellow at RUSI, is our host for this episode. His guests are Admiral Harry Harris, formerly a US ambassador to Korea from 2018 to 2021. Before that, he served as the commander of the US Pacific Command, which has now been renamed the Indo-Pacific Command, and also served as direct representative to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the Secretaries of State, Hillary Clinton and John Kerry. Also back on Asia Matters, Dr. Michael Reiterer, who also has an equally distinguished career as a long-term diplomat working for his own national service and also the European External Action Service. He served as EU ambassador to Korea from 2017 to 2020, so crossing over with Admiral Harris. He is now a distinguished professor at the Centre for Security, Diplomacy and Strategy at the Brussels School of Governance. This podcast is part of a project on transatlantic dialogue on China that Rusi is running at the moment with Chatham House, which has been generously supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. That's all from me. For now, I'll hand you over to Raffaello and the discussion, a transatlantic approach to China, engaging Indo-Pacific regional partners. So without further ado, I'll get into the questions. And I'm going to start. I think it would be good to hear, you know, maybe not so much about how the Indo-Pacific is necessarily seen from Brussels and from Washington, which is, I think, a subject which increasingly we hear a lot about. But I think rather what would be interesting would be to understand a bit more from your deep experience of Korea in particular, how you think um, Europe and the United States are seen as Indo-Pacific powers, as partners, or as, you know, competitors in the Indo-Pacific context from uh, Seoul. So I'll start with Admiral Harris. Over to you. Yeah, thanks, uh, Ralph. That's a great question. I believe that the countries in the Indo-Pacific region view the United States as an Indo-Pacific power. I mean, let's face it, we've been in the Pacific for decades. We are a Pacific power, an Indo-Pacific power, and we intend to stay in the Pacific. Uh, We have our network of allies, friends, and partners, and all of our bilateral defense treaty allies, all of them, 100% of them, are in the Indo-Pacific, right? Japan, uh, Korea, Australia, Thailand, uh, and the Philippines. So we are in the Pacific. Uh, We have a large Pacific uh, border. We have territories uh, in the Pacific. We have states that are 100% in the Pacific. Hawaii comes to mind. We have uh, Guam, where America's Day begins, and on and on. I think that our major competitor in the region views us as a Pacific power and is taking steps to uh, correct that, if you will. So uh, I think uh, we're in there to stay. I'm convinced that Korea views us as their ally. We are their only uh, defense ally. And there is no doubt in anyone's mind uh, that the United States is in the Pacific for the long haul. 
Thank you for that. I think geography keeps you anchored there quite firmly. And I think your points about China in particular are very well taken. Dr. Reiter, over to you. Well, thanks. And um, thanks for having us. And it's a pleasure to see Harry again. On that issue, Ambassador Harris is, of course, in a much better position because for him, it's very easy to explain, as he did, the US as an Indo-Pacific power. For the European Union, it's a little bit more difficult. And I think, therefore, it was timely that the European Union published an Indo-Pacific strategy to put down the marker. That was not the first encounter with the Indo-Pacific or Asia, by the way. I have participated in many Asia-related events, whether it's the Asia-Europe meeting, ASEM, which was set up between the European Union and ASEAN. It was the development of Asia strategies. It was also, more recently, enhancing security work with and in Asia. It was connectivity, so there are a lot of activities. We also have a member state, France, which certainly is an Indo-Pacific power. Thanks to its presence in the Indo-Pacific, France has one of the largest exclusive economic zones in the world. There are French nationals living in the area, about a million, and there is a permanent presence of France in the region. But of course, the European Union is larger than France, and bringing the Indo-Pacific strategy out in September, I think, was also a marker for the countries in the region, including Korea, that the European Union cares and is aware of the importance, but as well as for the United States, that the European Union doesn't have the intention to play only a limited role in the near abroad, but as it was put down in the 2016 policy paper, the security between Asia and Europe is intertwined. So there is no European security and Asian security and US security. We have gone global. So I think the important thing is put the market down. And I know that this is also watched with great interest in Korea. I have given already several speeches on that, and I'm glad that we have this opportunity. It always needs an occasion to remind people of things. Yes, it never hurts to remind people of things, as you put it. Um, I wonder if I could sort of flip that question in a way and ask an issue. You know, when we talk about the Indo-Pacific and it's discussed in sort of strategic conversations or events like this one, the tendency is to look at China as a hostile adversary within this context. And I wonder, even if we take China as a sort of adversarial power within this context, it is still also a resident Asia-Pacific power. And so I wonder, seen from Washington and Brussels, what actually is the role, do you think, that our respective capitals would envisage for China in this Indo-Pacific uh, vision? Sure. A uh, very important question, Raf. Uh, let me just say that while I was in Korea as the ambassador, I was often asked whether we were asking uh, South Korea to make a choice between its only security ally on the one hand and its number one trading partner on the other. Now, this is a false narrative, in my view, designed to sow doubt about the history and the strength of our alliance. Korea made its choice in 1953, and so did the United States in 1950 when we went to Korea to defend them from the uh, invasion from the North. Now, to the question, the U.S. has partnered well with China on several important fronts. And when I say China, I mean the People's Republic of China, the PRC. And most recently, it was COP26 in Glasgow. 
But Washington and Beijing fundamentally disagree on how to approach the current international order. The PRC doesn't keep its word from its treaty with the British on Hong Kong to its human rights abuses against the Uyghurs and others and its attempts at commercial espionage and its quest to first isolate and then dominate Taiwan. As I testified when I was the PACOM commander, I testified before the United States Senate. I believe then, and I still believe, that the PRC seeks hegemony in East Asia uh, and beyond. They want to set the rules for the region, indeed for the world, which is why it's essential that free nations exercise vigilance. This is why the United States has made it very clear through our free and open Indo-Pacific strategy that we reject foreign policy based on leverage and dominance, and we seek instead to strengthen relationships uh, based on respect, equal footing, and fair exchange. We believe in partnership economics, and we won't weaponize debt as the PRC does. Instead, we strive to build environments that foster good, productive market economies. Now, I'll note that certainly while the how-to of dealing with the PRC uh, will change uh, with the Biden administration, the fundamental understanding of the PRC has not. I mean, consider Secretary of State Blinken's testimony before the Senate himself when he said that the previous administration's tough approach on China is right, that what is happening in Muslim Western China is genocide. Very strong words come from the Secretary of State. And that democracy is being trampled in Hong Kong. Now, Secretary of Defense uh, Austin, he said that he was focused on the pacing threat which is the modern uh, PRC, and he promised strong support for Taiwan. So I, I think this is all important, and that's why I've called to end the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity in relation to Taiwan and move toward a policy of strategic clarity. I think that question of strategic clarity, I think, is an interesting, which maybe I'll, I'll pick up on a little bit later. But Dr. Reiter, over to you. Well, I think the European Union also looks at China in, a, I would say, a very realistic manner. And the 2019 EU strategic outlook on China, which introduced these three elements that China can be a partner, a competitor, and a systemic competitor, I think that was accepted by many, including, I have heard, is being used by the United States. So the approach of the European Union I think is to avoid binary situations, this either or, you have to jump on this or jump on that. But this is, of course, a multi-layered approach because there is no doubt where the European Union stands on values, where it stands on human rights. But we cannot pretend that China isn't there or we cannot pretend that we can solve problems without China. I think we have seen that also at COP26, where it was good that the United States and China came up with a joint statement in the context of climate change, because that's exactly what we were advocating. One has to make choices where we need cooperation. I think the engagement which the European Union can bring to the Indo-Pacific is also to offer a possibility of cooperation in all those areas without binary solutions. And this hedging possibility I think is taken on by partners with great interest. 
It also, I think, if you look at the Indo-Pacific strategy, for example, you will see that uh, Taiwan is mentioned, that trade relations have to be improved, and there is clear talk about human rights. But of course, if you have such a policy, you always have to make choices when at which situations you are focusing on which side of the coin, but never forget that you have a coin in your hand and a coin has two sides. Thank you for that nuanced perspective from Brussels on that. And actually, I'm going to remind our audience that if they do have questions that they'd like to ask, to please put them into the Q&A function and I'll pick some up and put them out. And actually, I'm going to do that right away because one of the questions that's come in from Baroness D'Souza does pick up on exactly some of these questions that we were just touching on. And she picks up specifically, Admiral Harris, on what you mentioned about the Secretary of State referring to the Uyghur genocide. And what action, if any, to prevent this activity will the United States take, as is therefore required by international law when you invoke genocide? So I think that's a specific US question, but I think it'd be interesting to hear what the perspective in Brussels is on how to take forward this discussion of genocide. And then a second part to her question that I'll add in there as well, which I think is another spin on it, is this, is demonizing the People's Republic of China the way forwards in trying to address this issue? If we're going to not take a military stand, if we're just going to sort of shout rhetoric, is this necessarily the way forwards to actually resolve and get some movement on what we've seen happen in Xinjiang? So, uh, Baroness, uh, I'm a pundit now. I'm not associated with the government anymore. So I don't know. I'm not privy to what steps the United States will take. I do believe it is important for all of us to call out the PRC when they do things like what is happening to the Uyghurs in uh, Xinjiang. I also think that while no one wants to demonize anyone else, I believe that if you believe that what is happening is genocide, then I can't think of anything more demon-like than those that, that would perpetrate that. Thank you, Omar Harris, Very clear answer to those two questions. Uh, Dr. Ritter. Well, I think demonizing is never a good policy and not good in diplomacy. That's what I haven't done for 40 years and I would not recommend to anybody in the future. I agree with Ambassador Harris that one has to call out if there is a clear case. And I think the European Union has shown that, for example, when for the first time sanctions were used because of cyber attacks, that was at the time also at the risk that the investment agreement will not be signed. You have to see on which side of the coin you are looking. And I think with policy with China, but also with major powers in general, if you take a clear position, you will be respected. Whatever that position is, I would argue, if you are trying to avoid everything, well, then you are not an interesting partner. And that's what the high representative, I think, meant when he said the European Union has to learn to use the language of power. I think it shows a line of thinking that if you want to be part of uh, international conversations, well, first of all, have an opinion, secondly, stand for the opinion, and thirdly, implement your opinion. Sounds like a very clear diplomatic track that I suspect you've tried and followed and tested successfully a number of times. Um, I want to ask a specific question now to look more broadly at the Indo-Pacific. I'm going to start by caveating this question by saying that your answer can't be sold. But who do you think are the key regional partners that the United States and Europe need to look to when they're trying to engage on Indo-Pacific questions 
And I say not Seoul because I think as both of you as uh, long-standing Korea hands, I suspect that will probably be your first answer. So I'll take that one off the table, but I'd ask you to instead say, what other powers in the region do you think are really critical when Washington's looking out to the region, when Brussels is looking out to the region? Okay, well, I can't take Korea completely off the table because uh, my answer would be to work with the strategic partners in the region. The European Union is rather reluctant to use the label strategic partners because there are only 11 worldwide and five of the 11 are in Asia. And these are India, China, this is Korea, this is Japan, and this is ASEAN. And I would like to put perhaps a, a special focus also on ASEAN with whom the European Union has a very long-standing uh, relationship. I think next year we will celebrate 45 years of dialogue and strengthening ASEAN, and there is a need to strengthen ASEAN, is one of the key tasks of the European Union and to broaden the cooperation with ASEAN. So I think that's important from the multilateral point of view, and the European Union is very much linked to multilateralism and therefore ASEAN a natural partner. The European Union has also, if I may just add, as I served for nine years altogether also in Japan, there are two agreements, a strategic partnership agreement and an economic agreement, which I think have strengthened the relationship between the European Union and Japan as well as the first connectivity partnership was concluded with Japan. The same with India. I think with India, one has to rebuild in the Indo-Pacific the relationship, and there's some catch-up, which is not easy. Well, Korea, of course, I think is also a partner in its own right. I don't see it just as a sandwich between two mega powers. It has its role to play as one of the largest economic powers in the world, and very important nowadays when we talk about the resilience of production lines, the resilience of technology, tech companies, fourth industrial revolution, it has a role to play. And also China is a strategic partner. But again, I come back to my coin. I always look at the right side of the coin. So it sounds like the EU sees a lot of big partners um, out in the region. Uh, Admiral Harris, over to you. What's the view from Washington? I'll just begin by saying that I've never been accused of being an academic. And if you believe some of my colleagues in Korea, I've never been accused of being a diplomat either. So I'll answer this question straightforward, but I'll take off the table those five treaty allies that we have that I mentioned before. These are our defense treaty allies in the Indo-Pacific. And, you know, we are, depending on the treaty, obligated to defend them. And many of them have been with us in every war in the 20th century and the 21st century. So how we treat our treaty allies is fundamental and obvious. So I'll move off of that. And then I'll talk about the other countries in the region that we pay particular attention to um, Singapore for sure. Singapore is a key partner. I've often characterized Singapore as a partner that acts like an ally. We have uh, forces uh, there. They host our nuclear-powered warships and our ships when they come through. And we have Singaporean forces in the United States training. So I think that's key. India, as Michael said, and that's part of the Quad and a major purchaser of American defense products. Indonesia and Malaysia, critical partners in that region. Vietnam, very important trading partner and uh, a friend. ASEAN too, writ large, and I think it's terrible 
that we haven't had an ambassador, a fully confirmed, full-fledged ambassador to ASEAN in over five years. There's something just not right about that. Uh, New Zealand, critical partner. I've spent a lot of time in New Zealand. They are a great friend. They were with us uh, after 9-11 and certainly long before that. And Mongolia, let's not forget Mongolia, a democracy in a very tough neighborhood, sandwiched between Russia to the north and the PRC to the south. I'm very pleased that you mentioned Mongolia, in part because I often am quite frustrated by some of these conversations about the Indo-Pacific and Asia, which tend to uniquely focus on the seas. And they forget that Asia has a huge land component as well, where there are a number of very That's important right. powers. So I'm, I'm, I'm very I've been in Mongolia, and uh, it's a magnificent country, in my view. Absolutely. Um, you started a question there when you mentioned Russia, and so I'm actually going to pick up on that as a power in uh, the Indo-Pacific, which, of course, is, is quite a complicated relationship, because on the one hand, Russia has you know, its own complex relationship with the West and with the United States and with Europe. And then it has a very special relationship with China, but then it also has a very complicated relationship with a lot of regional powers who have more contentious relationships with China. So I wonder if you could talk us through your sense of Russia as an Indo-Pacific power and whether you see it through the lens of being a sort of an ally to China and therefore in the sort of hostile diversity lens, or is it something, is it a power that actually could be engaged with in some contexts as well? Because it's such a critical part. And you mentioned India, for example. India still has a very strong defense relationship with Russia. And of course, this puts all sorts of different complicated issues into it. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Russia as an Indo-Pacific power. They are an existential threat to the United States. And they are a great power because of their nuclear weapons. But if you were to take those nuclear weapons off the table, I do not view them as an Indo-Pacific power. Their strength and their force structure is based to the east, facing Europe. Now, they have a strong Indo-Pacific component, Vladivostok and their submarine bases that border the Pacific. But if you take the nuclear weapons off the table, they're not an Indo-Pacific power, though they are an Indo-Pacific presence. And they play the long game with regard to their relations with countries in the region. As you said, they have a very contentious relationship with Japan. In fact, an oddity of history, Japan and and Russia, previously the Soviet Union, have not concluded a peace treaty following uh, World War II because of the issue of the Northern Territories and Kuril Islands. They have a relationship with uh, the PRC, and they often play that against us. So they are clearly a player in the Indo-Pacific. I think I would see Russia more focused on Central Asia as part of the legacy of the Soviet Union. And I think we have also seen that when China was rolling out its Belt and Road Initiative, Russia paid a lot of attention how the connections were planned, rail connections uh, through Central Asia to Europe. Uh, That doesn't mean that they are not present in the Indo-Pacific, especially when we take the Indo-Pacific as it's defined from reaching from uh, East Africa to the Indo-Pacific Islands. So, of course, Russia is there, but they are cooperating there a little bit with China. So China is perhaps in the first row and Russia in the second row. I think there is also an issue of the complementarity of the economies of the Asian countries and Russia, where uh, Russia is strong in energy, which is important. 
However, for the rest, it's arms industry and it's some nuclear industry. So I think that limits Russia in its dealing with the countries in economic terms. And that reduces the role to a certain degree. But we also see, on the other hand, if we look at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, there you see the cooperation between China and Russia. But again, the focus is more on Central Asia and also to Europe, as we experience on a daily basis, if I look what's going on around Ukraine. It's a complicated question, but I think Russia certainly thinks and acts like it has a role in the Indo-Pacific. Um, I want to pick up on another point, and one of my uh, Rusi colleagues, Charlie Parton, has asked a question picking up on uh, Admiral Harris, your reference to strategic ambiguity and your call for a sort of clarity on this particular question. And the question uh, Charlie asks is, you know, on the one hand, maintaining clarity in terms of the military side, you know, is fairly easily made. You can make a very clear statement about, you know, requirements, things that will happen. But I think the relationship with China is, of course, far more complicated than just a military confrontation. It has economic interlinkages, which not only tie back to the United States, but tie to the world, tie to the region. Do you think that the, the sort of clarity that you're calling for on the sort of Taiwan question in particular, from a military perspective, also has an economic component? And do you think that economic component can really be carried through on, given the really catastrophic consequences, both, I think, within China, but also potentially around the world that would sort of follow as a result of that? So I've called recently, as I said, for changing the U.S. policy from strategic ambiguity, a policy which has served us well with regard to Taiwan, to one of strategic clarity. We are obligated by American law, the Taiwan Relations Act in 1979, which outlines and delineates clearly what our obligations are with regard to Taiwan. We are not obligated under the law to defend Taiwan. Taiwan is not a defense ally of the United States, uh, as the other countries that I mentioned uh, are. President Biden, he said that we would defend Taiwan, and the White House quickly walked that back because, again, the law is clear on what our obligations are. We are responsible for providing the legitimate defensive needs for Taiwan, and that's not providing gratis. That's making available to them for them to purchase. But let's talk about Taiwan for a second. They are democratic. They are an economic and innovation powerhouse, and they are a global force for good. I believe that the time for strategic ambiguity has ended. This good policy, which has served us well, it's now a distraction. We need to be clear, in my view, with the PRC on what we will do if the PRC invades Taiwan. And we need to be clear to Taiwan so they will understand what our obligations are. And we need to be clear to the American people. And that's why I think the policy of strategic clarity is important now as we move uh, into the 2020s here uh, in the United States and globally. Do you think all the countries in the Indo-Pacific region, all those powers, close allies you mentioned and listed before, would support that particular line from Washington? Or do you think they, in fact, prefer a certain level of ambiguity, because it does allow for the context that they currently sort of live and thrive under. You know, I, I don't know. You'd, you'd have to ask each of those countries. But I do believe they're uncertain about what we would do if the PRC were to invade Taiwan. And Admiral Davidson, my successor at Indo-PACOM, uh, he put the timeline on at five years from now, 2027, 
or so, the PRC could be militarily ready to invade Taiwan. And President for Life Xi Jinping moved his timeline to the left to 2027. Now, let me be clear here. I'm not suggesting in my call for strategic clarity that we say that we'll defend Taiwan. I'm saying that we should be clear as to what we would do. That's a governmental decision. That's a White House decision with the advice of Congress and all of that. But I think we need to be clear. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Reiter, over to you. Well, I think that the European Union is a little bit in, playing in a different league. However, this doesn't mean that the problem is not there. I mean, we have seen it uh, recently with Lithuania. I think you are aware that uh, Lithuania allowed Taiwan to open a trade office in Vilnius under the name of Taiwan, which was not to the liking of the People's Republic. But the European Union has declared on that, that opening a trade office under the name of Taiwan does not change the one-China policy of the European Union. If you analyze this, it's a clear message that one is looking at Taiwan as an important entity, which is not only important in terms of trade. I have referred to the Indo-Pacific strategy, which talks about enhancing the trade relationship. It is important in terms of technology, and it is also important because it shows that a Chinese country can be a democracy. As the European Union does not stand at all for invasions, but just on the contrary for diplomatic uh, solutions, I think this is a message which is rather clear. And giving that message now in the framework of the incident with Lithuania, I think, makes it also clear on which side the European Union stands. We've had a number of questions that are talking in different ways, and so I'm not going to quote them all. <laughs> there has been an increase in forward military deployments. We've had an increasing amount of naval activity by European powers in the region. We've had a fairly constant sort of US presence, of course, in the region that Admiral Harris, you've led for some time. I wonder if you could talk us through some of these deployments. And it'd be interesting, I think, to hear from both of you, really about the European side, because I think Europe is the changing dynamic here. I think it's European powers that have started to make their presence much more felt. And I wonder if we could think a little bit about, from a European perspective, do we think there's been enough coordination on these questions? And when I'm talking about European powers, I'm talking not only about EU, but of course the UK as well. We've had recent issues, AUKUS is the most obvious example, which appeared to suggest some sort of frictions there some lack of coordination potentially, but we've also had some sort of joint operations in the region. But I'm wondering, Dr. Reiter, what do you think about uh, all this sort of European military and naval presence? Is it well-coordinated? Does it need to be worked through better? And what structures do you think should be used to ensure that Europe is able to maximize its presence if you think it's an appropriate thing? Well, I think this is an area where it's much easier for Harry to talk, but I think what we're seeing right now is a sort of rethinking, which has uh, started in, in Europe, which has also become visible. What is under discussion right now is what is called the strategic compass. And the strategic compass is, is an effort within the European Union to come to a risk perception, which is shared by all partners in the European Union, and to draw the conclusions. So this is something which has already been discussed once by foreign ministers and which will come through with security and defense on the mind, and also having in mind what I said earlier, that we recognize that the security is intertwined and there are not different securities out there in the world. I would say 
you could see a constant recognition by European powers that showing the flag or flying the flag has become more, more important. I do recall when I was at the Shangri-La conference, as I believe it was in 2018, when at the same moment, the Charles de Gaulle was at the port in Singapore. I think that was, of course, not a coincidence, but was a strong message. Right now, while, while we talk, you have a German frigate, the Hamburg, uh, sailing in the region, which is new. That does not alter the military balance in any way, but diplomacy is also about symbols and signs. And I think that is a symbol and sign that also Germany is taking up uh, the issue and makes it visible. The French, I have already mentioned, I mean, they are permanently in the region also with smaller units. And when we develop this common approach, and we still have a long, long way to go, because there we are operating in the mode that all countries have to agree. This is not something that the European Union can decide and impose on member states. On the contrary, everyone has to work hand in hand with member states. And there are only a handful of member states which have also the military hardware to effectively participate. But coordination is important. AUKUS was not the highest level of coordination one could wish for. And I think uh, some porcelain was broken, and I, I do see some efforts to put it together. So hopefully it was also a lesson learned, because if you expect an ally to be on board, well, uh, make sure that he is invited on board, because otherwise you are at the pier and waving, and I think that's not what we would like to see. Thank you for that very diplomatic comment on AUKUS from your seat in Brussels. Um, Admiral Harris, over to you. I think all of the deployments by European powers we have seen recently, and, and you could go back much further than that, is a recognition of how important the Indo-Pacific is to the world. You know, European powers have a vested interest in what happens in the Indo-Pacific. Notwithstanding the fact that, as Michael said, you know, France has a huge Indo-Pacific footprint with New Caledonia and French Polynesia. When you consider the EEZs, the exclusive economic zones around those, well, I mean, France becomes the world's sixth largest country or something like that. The UK has a vested interest in the region because of Diego Garcia and, uh, and, and on and on. But, you know, they're not new to the region. I mean, the UK has been a part of the FPDA, uh, the Five Powers Defense Arrangement, with Singapore, Malaysia, Australia, and New Zealand for decades. And they exercise. India, with its Malabar series of exercise, includes now Australia and Japan, which is to say the Quad. And then, as Dr. Ryder diplomatically said, our new AUKUS agreement, uh, the Australia, the United Kingdom, and the United States, while that agreement was perhaps, as President Biden himself said, clumsily executed to the irritation of France, this is recognizing how important that is. Now, the Quad is not a NATO. It's never going to be a NATO. It's not a defense pact. It's a grouping of like-minded democracies that view the region through a similar lens, both challenges and opportunities. And it's important that the first big action that the Quad took earlier this year was to go after COVID vaccine distribution. AUKUS, on the other hand, is a defense pact. And the fact that the United States and the UK have agreed to share nuclear submarine technology with Australia is not insignificant. 
I mean, we've only shared our nuclear submarine technology with one other country in the whole wide world, and that's the UK. So that is significant. That is a defense pact. And then there are other relationships in which the United States is not a part. FPDA is one case in point. I want to try to group a few things together here that builds off the conversation we were just having and tries to pick up on a couple of questions at the same time, which is I get the sense that the shift that we see happening, pushed most substantially by Washington, but we see also Europe engaging in this to some degree, is this idea of engaging with constellations of powers in the region. So structures like the Quad become kind of the vehicle through which the United States external powers try to engage with the region, where you don't have a kind of a homogenous, unified group that you bring together, in part because they don't all agree. We just saw Wendy Sherman, the US Deputy Secretary of State, host a meeting with her Japanese and her Korean counterparts and show up to the press conference alone because the Japanese and the Korean counterparts didn't agree. I think that shows really how complicated the relationships are. India and the Quad that you talked about, of course, now we see a great unity of purpose behind that structure. But if we go back to its early years, of course, there was a huge hesitation, a sense of doubt about you know, whether India was serious or engaged or whether Australia was engaged in you know, different powers of different views. And we saw the structure sort of moving forwards. And so the question I want to put to you both is how sustainable do we think this strategic approach is? So I, I made a conservative push. I'm a big booster of the Quad. I pushed for it in 2016 at the inaugural Rising Dialogue in uh, New Delhi. I was a little ridiculed by certain quarters, including some of our papers in the United States. But I, I believed in it then, and I believe in it now. I have called formally uh, in speeches and, and other venues for the formation of a Quad Secretariat, because I think we need something like that now that the Quad is, seems to be off and running in order to figure out what issues to bring to the leaders so that they can uh, figure out what issues to take on as a grouping. And also to get at the question of new members. There's no mechanism for another country to join the Quad because it's an informal grouping. And for some of the reasons that you talked about, Ralph, it could be problematic. So I think we need to have some kind of a, a secretariat function to sort of be a clearinghouse for those sorts of things. I've likened it to American college football. Some of your listeners will understand this. You know, we have the Big Ten Conference. It has 14 teams. We have the Big 12 Conference. It has 10 teams. So there's nothing that says the quad has to have four teams. But I do think we need to have a mechanism by which we can get through on that. With regard to uh, AUKUS, I'm all for it. You know, how longstanding are these things? Well, if you look at the Australian, New Zealand, U.S. Defense Pact, of which we have set aside our treaty obligations to New Zealand over the issue of nuclear-powered warships. But ANZUS has been around since 1951. We have been formally allied with Australia since then and uh, with the U.K. since the beginning of NATO uh, in 1949. So these are, in fact, longstanding. Uh, FPDA has been around for a long time. And so I think that those formal defense arrangements, as some are treaties, some are arrangements, have been around for a long time. And I think now they have become more relevant than ever because of the previous question, the interest in the Indo-Pacific region. Well, you will not be surprised. I come therein a little bit differently. I've mentioned uh, multilateralism. I think uh, these minilateral agreements, they can have a certain role to play. But one has to be very careful that many minilateral arrangements don't kill off multilateralism. That's, I would say, is rule number one. Rule number two, if I look at the Quad, uh, well, I don't think that the Quad 
can become a sort of directorate of the Indo-Pacific. There, the Indo-Pacific is too big and the number is too small. If there is a distribution of vaccines, great. The more distribution of vaccines to some countries, the better. But I think this is not exactly what we are talking about. So I am a little bit reserved about it for that reason and also for another reason. All those participating in the Quad would pay lip service to ASEAN centrality. Well, can anybody explain to me how ASEAN centrality and Quad goes together? We also have the East Asia Summit, which was already in addition to the ARF, the ASEAN Regional Forum. I always interpret that as a wake-up call for ASEAN to get its act together. Otherwise, there will be a multiplication or a, many additions to the existing ASEAN structures, and then ASEAN centrality will evaporate. So to come back to that, multilateralism, I think, is very valuable, especially when talking about such a large, huge area like the Indo-Pacific, where I would like to see structures which make sure that there is cooperation. And that can be, of course, within networks, because the Indo-Pacific is a huge region. When we talk about Asia, then we always chop it down in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, whatever. And suddenly we are talking about the Indo-Pacific as if it were our living room. And I think, therefore, we have to make an effort to come up with structures which take into account that size, sheer size and diversity. But at the same time, I would argue very strongly one has to avoid minilateral constructions which de facto exclude, including and open. I think that's what the Indo-Pacific talk is all about, and we should not kill that bird. I want to end with a, a specific question to you both. This event was specifically titled A Transatlantic Approach to China, Engaging Indo-Pacific Regional Partners. What do you think is the key issue that will bring the transatlantic alliance together to confront the issues that they see in the Indo-Pacific. So uh, I've also never been accused of being an Atlantisist because I've spent most of my career militarily and my tiny window of diplomacy in the Pacific and Indo-Pacific. I think the, the fundamental issue from the United States' perspective in the Indo-Pacific is managing our relationship with the PRC. No one wants to go to war and all that. And so I think from our perspective, the rise of the PRC, economically, militarily, culturally, all of that is going to be our focus for the near term. That said, I think without speaking for the Europeans, I think the Europeans' concern is going to be the relationship between the United States and the PRC, which will dominate their concerns going forward. I think what Europe and the United States uh, have to do, and luckily they have started now, is to make sure that the transatlantic and the Indo-Pacific dimensions are not completely apart or even antagonistic. I think the setting up of a working group was more than timely. It was just about time to do it. And also to make sure that the concern in Europe that the concentration of the United States, now what I like to call pivot point two, to the Indo-Pacific does not mean the transatlantic dimension is number two, three, four, or we are just about to forget it. 
I think what our discussion has, has shown that there is uh, some complementarity between the approaches between the European Union and the United States, also in the larger Indo-Pacific area, because uh, the strengths and the focus is, is slightly different. And I think this is good. This is good for our partners because they can see with whom they cooperate more in one or the other field. I think this functional cooperation is very important. My last comment would be from the European point of view, one should not fall into the trap to see everything in the binary optic China, China and China. I think that would be too much of a win-win situation for China. And therefore, I would like to close with my mantra which basically says that there is no Asia policy without a China policy, but only a China policy is no Asia policy. And you can apply that to the Indo-Pacific. Thank you very much. Well, I steal that Asia. line, Michael. I like that. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, well, thank you both very much. Uh, this has been a fascinating overview of the Indo-Pacific questions. And I'm very glad that we've gotten sort of beyond just looking at China, but talking about the wide range of different relationships that the United States and Europe have in the region. It just falls to me to thank my wonderful speakers, Admiral Harris uh, and Dr. Reiter for taking the time. Thank you and good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, that was a fascinating discussion. Really interesting to hear from such distinguished guests. You can get in touch with us here at Asia Matters Pod. We'd love to hear from you. We have a website, asiamatterspod.com. There you can find more information about all of our episodes and as well as that transcripts of those episodes. We also have a Twitter handle at Asia Matters Pod. We have a site on LinkedIn as well if you have access to that. Thank you so much to Rebecca Bailey for producing this episode. Thank you to Alexander Lestrange for doing the music for Asia Matters as well. Thank you also to all of you for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll have more to come in the new year. For the time being, though, thank you and goodbye.